Go. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, from the first verse. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you... When, you, when they revile and persecute you and say all things of evil against you falsely for my sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Let it work in our hearts and minds, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I bring you cordial greetings from the saints of Poland, of Evangelical Reformed Church in Gdańsk. Thank you for your prayers and faithful support in our ministry. We often pray for your church and for your pastors, for your elders and all of you. Together with Yola, we are grateful that we can be among you today at the service and praise the name of our Lord together. Today's sermon will be on the eight Beatitudes of our Lord Jesus Christ. They begin the most famous sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. They are also its summary. The Beatitudes were directed to the disciples of Jesus who responded to call to, to call to follow him. The Beatitudes are not merely a set of moral principles apart from a relationship with Jesus. Their context is the words of Lord Jesus which he spoke a moment earlier, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Beatitudes describe the features and lifestyle of those who belong to kingdom of God. Therefore, we should know their content and live according to the words of our Lord. The first blessing is, blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, for this is the kingdom of heaven. The word translated poor is the Greek ptochos, and it comes from the verb meaning to crouch, to bend, to bend over, a position typical for beggars. And our Lord refers to spiritual poverty. This blessing comes first for a simple reason, because without it, there is no entry into the kingdom. There is no one in the kingdom of God who is not poor in, in, in spirit. This is the basic quality of heavenly citizen. 
The poor in spirit, when they read the biblical teaching on the spiritual condition of people, they say not only such is the world, humanity is sinful, they also say this is about my sin, this is about my spiritual condition. Poverty in spirit is, is the awareness of spiritual bankruptcy. I have nothing, I don't have any life insurance, I have nothing to secure God's favor. Therefore, the poor in spirit is not a man who recognizes that, this, uh, that, that his merits are, are small and God's quite large. The Lord Jesus speaks of those who have, who have nothing, not those who have little. Paul writes that he has many reasons to boast about what he is according to the flesh, but he considers his he considers it garbage, not as small merit. He is poor in spirit. In the eyes of the world, he may have a lot, but before God, the only thing he's able to present is his own sin for which God's son died. This is why it is the first blessing. It is the starting point. To stand before God, we must stand before him as spiritually bankrupt. Thomas Watson wrote, the hand that holds the stone cannot be filled with gold. The second blessing. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The second blessing follows the first the poor in spirit, seeing their they spiritual ruin, grief. The fact of being spiritual beggar leads them to sadness. It is not about being sad about your favorite team, like Seahawks, losing Super Bowl. <laughs> Jesus promises comfort to those who grieve over spiritual adversity. It is... It is evangelical sorrow leading to lasting consolation. However, we must be careful, for there is such a thing as worldly sorrow leading to despair. There are people who let themselves be overcome by sadness that has nothing to do with conversion. Such sadness is living in a dark Basement. This kind of sadness is to be avoided. We have several examples of it in the Holy Scriptures. For example, Amnon, Ahab, Judas, uh, Pharaoh in the time of Moses, or rich young men from the gospel. So it's about sadness caused by spiritual poverty. However, this blessing can develop further. It is also sadness for the condition of the world. Christianity includes caring and praying for the world. We are priests of God to fight for people in the world. This is why we, for example, pray for your country, for Seattle, for Woodenville, for Kirkland, for the 
USA, and, and the other countries. As Christians, we cannot say that we are indifferent to whether human rights are violated in Africa, whether people um, are illegally uh, segregated in Canada, or whether uh, it is legal to kill unborn children in Sweden. God loves the world. This is why sin makes, makes him sad. Christ wept over unfaithful Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul grieved over the sin of his fellow countrymen. Lot was troubled by the sin of the inhabitants of his city. Note, however, that this blessing speaks of sorrow, but also of consolation from God. In the times of Reformation, mainly jo uh, joyful songs were written, and it was shock for the Queen of England. But it was because the reformers took seriously not only sincere grief, but also joy, the comfort of being forgiven. The third blessing, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The first two beatitudes concerned our standing before God. The poor in spirit are the sorrowful. This blessing is more difficult because it involves the presence of the people. We usually associate meekness with indecision, withdrawal, and passivity. It's easy to, to confuse it with common courtesy. Meekness doesn't mean being quiet. Probably you know that some dogs can be quiet, but all you have to do is nudge one of them, and it will immediately throw it fangs at you and make a hole in your pants. Such a dog well illustrates the lack of meekness. Evangelical meekness is not taciturnity. You may have little to say in conversation with people, but cultivate arrogance and pride in your heart. Meekness is manifested when we have right view of God and ourselves, and it shows in the way we treat others. A man of mixed spirit does not greedily insist on something to which he has a right. He doesn't need to have uh, the last word in a discussion. He is less bold in making firm judgment in every case. The one who is not meek has an opinion on every subject and an interpretation of every situation. He says, let me talk. I will guide you. I will straighten everything out. I will finally lead the conversation in the right direction and to the correct conclusions. There is no hope without me. Unfortunately, sometimes the public testimony of the church is devoid of meekness. How Christians speak publicly about homosexuals sometimes, or people who have had abortions, sometimes it is behavior far from meekness, from humility.
love of neighbor. Of course, the greatest example of meekness is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is meek and humble heart. This is the only feature of Christ's character to which he himself draws our attention. It can be seen especially in the reaction to hostility, opposition, contempt, mockery. This is something that we, as servants of Christ, must cultivate within ourselves. The fourth blessing. Blessed, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Here, let's start with two questions. First, is there objective justice? And the second, is it knowable? Because there is no use believing that justice exists if we don't have the tools to know what justice is. The world answers no to both of these questions. There is no justice, so there is no standard to know it. But this denial does not prevent many people from railing against injustice in the world. And we as believers answer that there are both objective justice and an objective standard of justice, which is God's word, the Bible. So what is justice? It can be said briefly that it is compliance with God's standards, with God's law. Without God, there is no justice, only some, some, some intuition, opinion, action, and reaction. But then we have no standard to settle our opinions. What does the Lord Jesus expect from us here about blessing those who hunger for justice? First, we, sh we should desire to be declared justice by God. However, this kind of justice cannot be achieved by our own works. Only in Christ, when we trust him, does God see us justified and righteous. And second, once you are clothed with the righteousness of Christ and God sees you as righteous, you should be hungry and thirsty for doing righteousness. However, the desire for justice within us should go beyond us. We should desire justice in the world, in the law, in the church, in our countries, and we should pray for justice. Good fairy tales teach us that when a dragon dies, the townspeople rejoice. Why? Because justice triumphs. Some believe that calling for justice is unspiritual because we are to preach the gospel, not justice in the sinful world. Meanwhile, the desire for justice in the world is the fruit of the gospel, the fruit of love, of good, and hatred of evil. We don't separate the root from the fruit. Therefore, the Lord Jesus promises that those who hunger for justice will be filled. The fifth blessing, blessed are the merciful, for 
they shall obtain mercy. One of the characteristics of the new birth of true Christian is to be merciful. We, who do we call, who, who do we call a merciful person? It is difficult to provide an exhaustive definition, but I think that I will not be wrong if I say that we call merciful a man who shows a good and kind heart towards his neighbor, feels pity for those who have suffered physical or spiritual misfortune, and considers how to help them. And he shows mercy, not only with good intentions, but with deeds. A merciful person is not the one who feels pity, a feeling of compassion. They work. We read that the good Samaritan took pity on a man lying on the roadside, and it is not that he thought, oh, what, what, uh, what, what a poor man, I, 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 I feel sorry for him. First of all, he counteracts his arm and pain. He comes to meet, to, to, to meet him, to bring him help and relief. And such is our Lord Jesus. He didn't just look at the sinful world and felt pity for it. He came to a sinful world to bring mercy. And this mercy consisted of getting entangled in the complexities of this world, in human envy, in human lies, in suffering. Mercy can be costly to the one who shows it. As Christians, we are called to show mercy to others because God is merciful to us. But to show mercy, you must know mercy. You must experience mercy. You must be grateful for God's mercy, but also for the mercy of all these people who, shows mercy, who show mercy to us when they endure our faults, shortcomings, misguided words. And we should be aware that we need mercy from others, but we should also bring it ourselves. Being merciful to someone means, for example, that you don't open your ears to the gossip of others, that you don't need to share your brother's faults with others, that you don't quote someone else's sleep or, uh, of the tongue, or that you may sometimes ignore a statement, you don't agree with it. With it. Not everyone in the not everyone in the in the internet is right, but you don't have to be the one to prove it to everyone. The sixth blessing: Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purity has been understood in various ways throughout the history of Christianity, not always in a um, biblical way. In the Roman Catholic Church, a form of religious life developed called monasticism, the basis, the basis of which is life in a religious community. And, uh, and one of the rules of religious life is to make so-called vows of chastity, which is understood as abstaining from sexual intercourse. 
There are even trends to promote so-called uh, white marriages, which means marriages that choose to avoid intercourse. It is believed that some kind of grace flows from it to the couple. It is obvious that it is not what the Lord Jesus is teaching here. It's not about focusing solely on sexual purity. The purity of heart relates to who we are, our deepest, most hidden thoughts, choices, and motivations. God sees all this. No, none of these things are hidden from him. Our Lord indicates that true faith is the faith of the heart, the faith of the inter interior. Of course, I don't mean statements like Christianity is just my private relationship with Jesus, not forms. God is not interested in my behavior, but in my heart. But we must remember that our faith is not only correct liturgy, correct theology, raising hands in the right place, and conforming to the principles of Christian ethics. Our faith is the faith of the heart, but the faith of the heart should manifest in itself in the faith of hand, foot, ear, or eye. A pure heart manifests itself in pure actions of the hand or foot. The seventh blessing, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Peacemaking is a great skill. Someone will say, what a, what a great, great skill is this? All I have to do is stay at home, not answer the phone, not reply on the internet, and stay away from people. This, is the, this way I will have peace with, with everyone. But, but peace is not the same as indifference or passivity. Jesus speaks of peacemakers. Naturally, we are the, we are the ones who make things worse. So peacemaking requires maturity. When the, uh, when the first people lost their peace with God, harmony ceased to exist in every other realm because Adam and Eve's disobedience, all creation, lost its harmony. Man has lost peace with God, but also with himself, after the fall, Adam felt shame. We can say that he stopped feeling good about himself. Man has lost peace with other people, including the closest one, his wife. Adam's accusations against Eve appeared. Man has lost the harmony of the body. There were faults in the bodily functions, illnesses or pains. Man has lost harmony with creation, nature. The earth began to produce weeds and is no longer compatible with man as it was before the fall. Of course, there are people 
who, looking for harmony with nature, embrace trees and define themselves as unity with nature. But if someone wants to find out if they live in unity with nature, let them try to stroke a wild crocodile or jump into, into a rushing river or leave their garden unattended for a month. The fact is that there is, there is no harmony. And without peace, there is no true fulfillment in the times of conflict, the things like family, friends, music can't make us happy. We don't find, we don't find fulfillment or joy in a quarreling family, being conflicted with neighbors or brothers from the church, where there is no peace, sound of the guitar, the joy of the victory of your favorite team, the taste of your favorite dish don't bring joy or satisfaction. When the war broke out in Ukraine a year ago, over a year ago, many po Polish musicians and bands had that dilemma whether to play concerts in Poland during the war. However, in Christ, God works out peace in all areas where we have lost it. It is all through the work of Christ. If the gospel has the power to reconcile man with God, then even more so, it reconciles a man with a man, humanity with, a, with, with creation, and a man with himself. And the last blessing, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all things of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We come to the, uh, to the final blessing. While the previous blessings were descriptions of characteristics of Christian, this last blessing says, this will happen to you because you are Christian. It comes right after the blessing of peace. In a sense, because Christians are peacemakers, they will be persecuted. If you bring biblical peace, not tender kindness, you will be persecuted. We often think that when we suffer, it must be like Job, innocently. But you probably, you, you probably know examples of believers who are labeled and unkind, proud, conceited, and then complain about their faith, faith that people don't like them, and they suffer in the name of Jesus. Some believers have bombed abortion clinics. Probably the, the goal wasn't to kill anyone, but there were times when someone died in an explosion. Christians put on trial and convinced. Maybe they, they thought they were being persecuted like Christ. 
but it is not evangelical suffering. Let's think about it as follows. Analyze and injustice accusations against you when you are faithful to Jesus. Bring a blessing from God. Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. Someone, someone tells a lie about your faith, about your attitude, faithfulness to Jesus. Lock yourself in a room, turn off the light and dance. Why should we rejoice in the midst of persecution? First, Jesus says, to such belongs the kingdom of God. And second, because you are in very good company. What kind of company is this? It is company of faithful women and men who are on the list of heroes of faith. Abel, Job, David, Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah. To sum up, let the Beatitudes be more than a familiar theory to us. They are not out-of-reach out of criterion, a distant model for Shaolin monks or Jerusalem rabbis. Jesus addressed these words to his disciples. Maybe we will say, I am far from the pattern that the Lord Jesus is talking about here. If you think so, then you are in the right place. Welcome to the club. Therefore, it makes even more sense to return, return to, return to these truths, to realize that there is no other way for disciples of Jesus than to take his words seriously and put them into practice. What I wish to each of us. Amen. Dear God, thank you for Sermon on the Mount and Eight Beatitudes. Please make us faithful followers of Jesus Christ, and we pray in his name. Amen.